Welcome back to the reality show. And I'm delighted to have with me across from New York, the head of innovation for HSB, HSBC for the US, Jeremy Balkin. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Dan. Hi, everyone. How you doing? So the rather boring first question, but important in this time is, how are you and how are your family? Firstly, thank you for the question, Dan. Um, thankfully, everyone's healthy, which which always helps. Um, and and we are somewhat unusual in the sense that we have my wife and I have sixteen-month-old uh, twins, so they're in a really sort of unusual space where they're not formally at school, uh, and of course they're not babies, so they they're running around the apartment like mad. Um, and there's two of them. And they, they are sort of a little tag team there. Uh, the extent of homeschooling is me, um, a very frustrated father, talking to my, my kids about how much I miss the English Premier League. Um, and, and, and that would be great for that to come back soon, safely. Uh, and me trying to explain to my kids how the economy works. Uh, I suspect that that homeschooling has been a big fail because they would rather run around the house or the apartment um, with with full free abandon and then sit there and listen to me. Uh, but we're, I think we're officially down on day 74 uh, inside. So let's hope that this all ends pretty soon. Absolutely. So as a fellow parent, normally I would commiserate somebody on having twins of that age, but actually because they are preschool age, you're actually one of the lucky ones, I think at the moment. So look, let's, let's talk innovation. I mean, obviously innovation is your, is your job. Let's talk about the start of all this. HSBC is not a small company. So when this became apparent as what it has ended up being, what happened within your company in terms of sort of preparedness for working from home? And let's take it from there. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really fair and great question in the sense that we were one of the few major global corporations who or indeed major corporations with a global footprint as well, um, to actually have been pretty well prepared. For example, uh, we're doing this on Zoom. I'd personally been part of an early pilot of Zoom within the bank, uh, well ahead of the, the COVID uh, crisis, so that we were already testing it and using it. So that, for example, when essentially the world locked down, or at least the major markets in which we operated locked down. And really at the drop of a hat, 90 something percent of us went to working remotely. We rolled out Zoom to everybody, uh, really within a week, uh, which was incredible. And so the transition from one extreme being in the office to one the other extreme being at home, uh, for most of us, except for folks serving in branches who are absolute heroes, and some sort of back office staff and trading desks and so on and so forth who've been coming in for the most part. Um, it's been a pretty seamless transition. And again, it comes back to the, the point around preparedness and how important it is when you think through strategy. I think one of the areas where many companies fall down is when they think through strategy, traditional strategy, they think of solving the problems of today, which by definition are the problems of yesterday where real leadership comes out is when you think through strategy is what are the problems we're going to have in the future and you know problems opportunities etc 
And so that was one great example of, of having a forward-thinking posture around the future of work and having a sort of more progressive view around flexible working. And the piloting we did with Zoom, for example, paid off in spades. And so actually one of the really interesting things we saw early on, Dan, was, was actually people in many cases, I can certainly speak for myself, I would actually found rather than productivity, my productivity or my team's productivity going down, which was a fear of mine, it actually went up, especially in the first four weeks, to the extent where now, um, you know, burnout's a real thing. I mm. took three days off last week because I was, I, I couldn't give up work. I couldn't give up family, for example. So I, all I could give up was work to just recharge my batteries. So it's a real thing, but it's for the most part been very successful. So in terms of your Zoom pilot, what were you preparing for? Was it to have people working from home potentially as a future way of working? Was it actually planning for sort of business continuity in a crisis? What was the thinking behind the original pilot that ended up turning into something you used for real? So I can't comment for the the team that led this uh, specifically way back when for the pilot. But what I think I can comfortably say is that when you think through the global nature of HSBC, we operate in, you know, call it 60 plus markets. We've got a couple hundred thousand people in hundreds of different cities around the world. Uh, you know, I think it's just a reality that we have a mobile, flexible workforce. Uh, and so therefore, we already had that sort of posture, which was important. What we probably didn't expect is that some of those flexibilities would then become sort of permanencies, if you will, in the case of, of where we are today. And I think that's a really interesting um, thing to remember when it comes to innovation, or indeed pilots, is sometimes what you sort of think, what's the problem I'm trying to solve with this project? And then they come and the, the sort of the commercial relevance of them become even more valuable in other areas that you didn't even expect. So that's a really good innovation lesson too. Uh, I would also say that, you know, I think in the modern kind of world we live in, you know, I think having that hybrid between having a, a sort of a, a flexible approach to working remotely. Uh, so we were sort of accustomed to that as a firm going in helped tremendously with, okay, we're going to be remote for however long we got to be, you got the right tech, you know, go for it, you know, rather than sort of panicking. And I know I've got some acquaintances at other places, whether it's in banking or otherwise in corporate America, and they were scrambling. They were left scrambling, which is amazing to me. Mm. But be that as it may, we all learn and, you know, we're all better for it as an industry or industries. So I hosted you um, on a, I moderated a panel that you were part of in Los Angeles, maybe last year, maybe the year before. Time has lost all its meaning. It was March of 2019. There you I go. remember it very well. Um, very, and very well. I asked you what it's like trying to be an innovator in a very large organization in a very old and traditional industry that's traditionally slow to change. And you gave a great example about why HSBC are forward thinking around innovation more broadly. Given all that's happened, obviously innovation has gone from something that maybe you have to push to something that everyone absolutely has to do. And the timelines associated with innovation 
have obviously massively accelerated for everybody. For you, what does that mean in terms of an opportunity? That is a tough question uh, because I guess there's many ways to answer it. Um, I think first and foremost, it's great to hear so many uh, senior leaders and not only in HSBC, I've heard this across the industry as well, all of a sudden become an innovation disciples. Everyone's talking about how we're going to be innovative and agile. We're going to come out of this being more innovative and more agile. We've got to do things fast. And then I heard lots of great examples of some sort of breaking down the silos, everyone working together, getting things done. Lightning speed that if we were in a normal environment would have taken weeks, months, years to get done. And so my, my response to all that consistently been, well, why did it need it? Why couldn't this be BAU? Like, why did it take a crisis to get something done in weeks that would have normally taken months or years, for example? And no one can really give me an answer to that. <laughs> and, and, and it's sort of rhetorical in some ways because it proves my point that we need to be working much faster than we've always been. And it also begs the question around major organizations and how they're structured. If you think through, just think through the world we live in now, with regards to this Zoom environment, which doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon, or at least for the next sort of six, maybe 12 months, all we are is really a face on a screen. Mm. Think about it, or many faces on a small screen, right? And what I mean by that is that poses some very interesting both opportunities and challenges. For example, when all you are is a head on the screen or a talking head on the screen, it breaks down a lot of the barriers and biases that we all have as humans, which perhaps aren't, aren't there on a screen but would be there if we're in a boardroom, for example, where people have different physical presence, they have they, how they dress, where they sit at the table how they present themselves, which often it's not necessarily the best idea that wins. Whereas in this sort of screen-led environment, I actually find that the best idea is often winning much more. Secondly, I think, and I think that's actually quite interesting uh, as it's just a sort of a corporate dynamic, organizational development, social psychology perspective. And I actually think that's a good thing, but it also does flatten structures quite a bit. And so why did, why, you know, what will the future of corporations look like after this? Because if you can prove that you can work remotely, autonomously and at speed through this sort of innovation posture, then why, why, why A, is there a rush to go back to work as we know it, or at least the office? And in our case, there isn't one because we've proven through this disruption we can thrive. So no one's in a real hurry to sort of disrupt that again if it's working, which I think is also a good thing yeah. uh, and, and a very wise leadership um, posture. But therefore, what's this going to mean to hierarchies across the corporate world? And I think that's probably the next wave of this, what we'll see. I don't know what it'll look like, but I think that wouldn't surprise me if, if that comes out of this. Yeah. I think one of the drivers of whether people are desperate to go back to work or not is how old are the twins that are running around their apartment? I've been desperate to go back to work since week three, I can tell you. 
So you will have had an innovation roadmap for your work yep. across different areas of functionality, inter internal and external customer facing. Which yep. of those have been massively accelerated? And frankly, which of those have now been perhaps entirely scrapped because that type of innovation isn't going to be compatible with the new world? Yeah, great question. So we started 2020 off to a flyer with a sort of a deal we did with Google that we announced in January, which sort of caught everyone a bit by surprise. And I was really proud of that because I worked over Christmas and you know, over the holiday break, even when I was back home in Australia, um, was working on that remotely to get it done so we could announce it in January. Uh, so we, we got sort of a big one done and then that created some excess capacity to do some bigger projects that we really wanted to do as well. Um, and so my fear actually, Dan, was when the world went into lockdown and this remote environment, my legitimate fear was that everything was just going to slow. And we'd been, you know, I've been working on a project which is confidential, um, but involving many different partners, both within the organization and outside, that I really felt was just going to blow up or just be put on pause. And I actually found the opposite which is the outside sort of consultants who are involved. I mean, they obviously are still working, so they were absolutely accountable. In fact, proverbially put my foot on their throat because I didn't want this to die and the momentum to die. So in fact, they doubled down, which is great. And what I actually found was really interesting in this particular project, although I think, I, I think the behavioral premise holds true with other things that I found, Dan, is that when you, in this remote environment, I know exactly where to find people. They're at home. <laughs> I just zoom them. I know exactly where they are. Whereas in the office world, people hired all the time, and especially if their office isn't isn't the same one as mine. So actually, people have been really receptive. Uh, and so, so whereas my biggest fear was momentum would die, it's been the opposite. And in this particular project, you know, very early on, I actually made the case that we can't. This is exactly why we need this project for a COVID world, actually. So that created another sort of narrative around galvanizing people to to speed things up. So we're at probably 95% completion today, whereas, you know, if COVID didn't happen, we were on track to, to sort of roll it out, say, you know, September, October time. So we're way ahead of schedule, as an example. The early days, a lot more was being asked of me, uh, partly because I had cap capacity, uh, because of the, the Google thing we did in January that freed up a bit of my time. But also, we were all working 24 seven in the early days anyway. Uh, so, you know, and also, I'm a sort of that. That's sort of my work way anyway. So um, we, we were just taking on a ton of stuff because we, we had to. We didn't really have a choice. Um, but that's also why the burnout was real. Ten weeks later, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so honestly speaking, or sorry, should I say, very candidly speaking on that on that very honest question, uh, what I meant to say was, nothing in my world's been killed. Uh, if anything, it's pr proved the impetus to get them done. Uh, and I think just something that's given me a lot of excitement is that so many leaders now are all of a sudden innovation disciples. Uh, and I hope that really continues when, when we get out of this so that we can continue working at pace and thinking outside the box and, and looking at things with a fresh set of eyes and ears. You know, the way one of the, when I joined HSBC in 2015, the first thing I did was create a definition around what is innovation because you can't manage what you can't measure and you needed to get thousands of people to buy into this. And so the definition that I created was doing something differently that creates value. 
you know, ideas are free, talk is cheap, executing ideas are really, really hard, but it has to create some sort of value, whether that's for your people, uh, your, your shareholders, your customers, uh, your, your, you know, your regulatory stakeholders, etc. There has to be value created. And I think people have now realized why that definition wasn't sort of siloed to, it's about digital technology. It's really everybody in the organization can buy into that and, and needs to buy into that. And I think that's been really heartening to see people that, you know, five years later, it's sort of becoming part of the DNA, which is really good. Yeah. And I'm pr really proud of as well. So thank you for that candid answer. So we, when you talk about sort of how easy it is to get hold of people, and I, I completely agree with you. I mean, just, I've been wanting to get you on this podcast and I was waiting till my trip to New York to do so. And obviously now I just got you in now within, you know, 24 hours you've replied and, and here we are. So there are a lot of advantages in terms of getting hold of people and moving things forward because people have different amounts of time now because they're spared meetings, they're spared commutes and so on. What are the, maybe the three main downsides to trying to work in this environment from an innovation perspective that you've found? I think the first, well, to address your specific point about time, um, a lot of people have reached out and organizations have reached out to do podcasts and interviews and virtual conferences and, um, you know, 99% of them I've said respectfully said thanks, but no thanks to, but this is special because you run a great organization. With regards to the big, the three big ones, I would say the first is really the economic uncertainty because as companies are unsure what the next quarter and therefore the year's numbers will look like, that also will impact what next year's numbers and budgets will look like. So I think that's probably the first. I think the second is the overall uncertainty just of people. You know, what's the future of work gonna look like? Am I gonna have my job? Will I ever go back to the office? You know, when people ask too many questions, I find that it, it leads to not only anxiety and fear, but, but ultimately inertia. So people therefore just sort of run around in circles and that's never a good thing, especially in times like this. And I guess the third would be, um, it, you know, I think we, we undervalue, we underrate how valuable human connections really are. And especially in a time like this. And I think a lot of the predictions about the end of offices and work and human interactions, I think the death has been overstated to paraphrase Mark Twain. Uh, and, I, and I do hope that we'll get back to a healthy balance because humans, by nature, we crave interaction. That's how we're designed. And I think that the workplace is, is much, will be a much more productive, creative, and innovative environment when we're all working together. Do we have to be doing it all day, every day, 365 days a year? You know, I don't know. Does it, do we, can we come to the office a couple of days a week and then work remotely the rest? Time will tell. But those will be the big three for me. Thank you. So uh, uh, let's talk about that sort of future of remote working because it's very easy during a global pandemic for people sitting at home to say no one will ever return to offices again. There's some huge bold predictions being made about what won't return to normal. But Twitter have said their staff can work from home forever. You know, I think there's surveys that are saying at least 90% of companies would let at least 5% of their staff work from home going forward. So it's looking like that's going to be a change and maybe it's different based on, you know, geography, big cities maybe are more likely to do it. Where do you sit on the, how bold are these predictions and what's really going to happen? What do you think the future of 
working is going to be like in terms of percentages or days and, and so on? Oh, Dan, I'm going to make a big, bold prediction. And that is that I think the vast, vast majority of the big, bold predictions that have been made about the death of work will be wrong. <laughs> um, in, in, in all uh, seriousness, though, there's a very interesting study uh, done, and it's on the record. Anyone can Google it and read it. But, but by the European Journal of Social Psychology, it's, it's not a new study around how long it takes humans to form habits. And, you know, the old wives' tale, as it were, or the old adage that says it takes 21 days to form a habit isn't necessarily scientifically proven by the study. What the study says is that on average, and the key word is on, words are on average, it takes 66 days to form a new habit. And the average includes the really hard things and the really easy things, right? So let's just, but let's assume it takes between 21 and 66 days to form a habit, to be generous. I told you I'm on day 74, right? So what, there have been plenty of new habits that I've formed over this period that may never be unformed, so to speak, or some that, you know, when we go back to a more sort of free sort of movement environment and, and we'll go back to the weight. I'm not the only one. Billions of people are in the same boat. So then you say, well, okay, as people, for example, in the, in the case of work, have become accustomed to working from home, it's a lot easier, A, if you're in a role that is a knowledge role that doesn't necessarily require physical presence. B, it's a lot easier if you're in a long commute to the office. I, I've got some colleagues who literally spend four hours a day getting to and from work. So clearly their, their moral hazard is no one wants, they don't want to go back to work anytime soon. Because what? And if I was them, nor, nor would I. <clears throat> Just from the efficiency of getting four hours back of my day that's not spent commuting, for example. So that's why I think that the healthy balance needs to be formed, which is, you know, humans still crave interaction. The best ideas come from engagement, robust conversations, uh, you know, whether they're boardroom, around the boardroom table or the executive committee tables or through ideation sessions, design thinking workshops, speaking to customers, talking to your frontline staff, things of that nature. And it's easy for tech companies who, by nature, are knowledge-based, you know, that, that, that operate in the, in the cloud, so to speak, or in the virtual world, to have those sort of bold, provocative predictions. My sense is good luck. Uh, time will tell the folly of those, those sort of pronouncements. Obviously, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of competition amongst the technology companies in San Francisco, for example. So if one does, if one sort of, part of the industry starts changing sort of the workplace perks, then I guess they all have to follow. But a lot can go wrong when you decentralize thousands of people um, with no oversight or coherence. You know, there's risks to data privacy, to corporate espionage, to a whole range of pretty ugly things that could happen. Uh, not to say that it's, that it's all, you know, it's all bad, but those are some things to me that really make me just sort of give pause to the folly of some of these really bold, uh, outrageous predictions. At the same time, I think it'll be to my earlier point, there'll probably be a, a healthier mix for 
you know, the lion's share of people. I don't know whether it's the absolute majority, a significant majority, but, you know, probably one in two will be able to have a, a healthier balance between coming into the office when they need to, or maybe a couple of days a week or whatever the case may be. And then they have the balance of time working remotely. I could see that for some companies in some industries and in some cities, because that's the other thing. In cities like New York, San Francisco, even LA, for example, I know with, with the commutes and stuff like that, you know, it, it, if you can live and work in the suburbs and not do, deal with the commute every other day, you probably are more efficient and more productive. It's a better quality of life. It's a better work-life balance. And maybe you're more productive if that, if that equation holds true, then I think it will continue. But I think if, if things drop off as this remote environment continues, then it will very quickly go back to BAU, obviously on the assumption that it can be done safely, um, you know, the health issues are solved, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, as somebody who, under normal circumstances, used to fly to Utah three times a month because that's where my company is based, you know, there is a definitely a balanced part that I need to will change in the future. Just on this, on a personal level, assuming that you're given flexibility, which I imagine you will be, because you may well design the new system, what will you, what do you think your balance is? I'm sure you're desperate to get away from the twins for a couple of days now, but once life settles back to normal, what do you think your personal new world might look like? Yeah, it's a great question, both because the presumption of your question is accurate, but also because just it's a, it's a great question. So I love my kids. Actually, one of the benefits of this has been, you know, I traveled a lot before this. I spent a lot of time on the road and it sucked, especially when my wife, after my wife gave birth. So the benefit has been, uh, you know, that I've been home 24-7. So I, I've, you know, it's just been a blessing, even though I haven't unfortunately been as able to have been active, as active sort of during sort of normal business hours I would have liked because I've been really damn busy but at least I got to see through the, through, the, through the peripheral vision the kids and help out when I can and changing diapers when I when I was needed to or whatever that's been a blessing I think my role specifically or my function would be probably considered uh, one of those knowledge related roles that's not the first sort of batch of folks to go be, be required to, you know, for want of a better term, to be back in the office, at least in, in the early phases. Um, so I'm a bit circumspect about that because I do want to go back um, for a whole range of sort of pragmatic and just business reasons. I, I, you know, I, I need to be with, with the various stakeholders to understand what their challenges are. And some of that you don't get on a Zoom. You need to observe that in the environment to know what you're trying to solve for. Um, any more than the camaraderie, you know, being an expat in this great nation. Um, some of my family are colleagues, you know, genuinely so. So I miss that too. Um, but I do think, I'll come back to what I said earlier, I think when, if I think through, say, from September, call it Labor Day, through to, say, July 4th of next year, so well, the next sort of 6, 12, 9 months, I would say that I'm probably likely to be going in a couple of days a week for, you know, we have formal executive committee meetings and things like that. And then, you know, again, because of social distancing and other things, you know, my office may be told, you know, my office is at home and, and I, 
that's just the way it, it rolls because people are on a different schedule and you know coming in and coming out that sort of thing. My guess is that's probably what it'll end up looking like, but I do hope just from a societal perspective that we can overcome the health piece, whether it's medication, vaccine, treatment, or otherwise, so that we can not only go back to work, but if I'm going back to work, it means millions of other people, sadly, some of whom have lost their jobs, will hopefully go back too and get this economy kickstarted. And that, to me, is a bigger thing. I, I'm less concerned about whether I work at home or the office. That's a luxury, I, you know, I guess, that, to really have that decision. But I know that if I can go back, it means millions of others can. And that's much more important much much more important we should all remember that with humility when it comes to sort of thinking through these lofty uh you know thoughts about you know the future of work and all the rest of it there are people much much more important than us and hopefully that'll trickle down to everybody that we can all be safe and go back to work and be productive and get utility and meaning from our days and our and our professions and our roles and our you know roles within society that's much more important and we should never ever forget that Absolutely. Very well said. So look, you mentioned tech companies in one of your early answers. You know, your head of innovation at HSBC, a formerly a sort of traditional bank in a sector that's facing, you know, pre-COVID, lots of disruption from challenger banks with non-brick and mortar operations, all sorts of other areas of startup fintech sort of nibbling away at the business. In this world, does that make it harder for you or easier for you that innovation's been accelerated? I guess it's a bit of both. So the challenger stuff is more of a UK phenomenon than it is a US phenomenon. And that's partly been driven by the sort of regulatory landscape. And obviously the UK has been really, and as has Australia, candidly, on the open banking front. And actually, from a U.S. standpoint, that's actually going to benefit to us at HSBC because we've been able to leverage some of the open banking architecture, API, tech stack from our U.K. colleagues because obviously we need to be able to physically coordinate with them too within the bank. So as the, those technology enhancements have become open, so to speak, that's given us open and API connectivity capabilities here in the US, which has been a tremendous benefit for a lot of my work around partnerships uh, with FinTech in particular. And so that's been great. The second thing I would say is that we've also had a view since I joined in 2015, you know, I was empowered by my, my boss, my CEO to, you know, to build that bank of the future from within. And that's why we've partnered with some of the leading names in FinTech to, to white label and partner on lending platforms, you know, mortgage applications, uh, you know, in-branch solutions like robotics, wearable technology and others. So that's been awesome. Uh, and, and, you know, lucky as well, you know, be, be hum humble enough to say that, you know, the open architecture and the API stuff was really driven by the UK that we benefited from here. I will say that it's been very curious to observe the the challenges from afar obviously through this crisis you know their valuations in some cases have changed <clears throat> they've also been forced to to rationalize i've been reading some stuff just in the last 24 hours about that i love competition philosophically i think competition is a great thing i think it's important for our customers and i think it's important for our just as an industry that competition uh in fact 
becomes even more relevant because it forces us as an industry to innovate, to move forward, to be to renew, to to challenge those stereotypes and assumptions that have either hold true in the test of time or indeed holding the industry back. So I welcome it. Um, so I fear though, is if that really great industry thinking is lost because of COVID and creates less competition, I don't think that's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing for anyone, including the incumbent banks. Though it doesn't change my thinking, it doesn't change my work. As I said earlier, we're, we're doubling down on, on rolling things out to benefit our customers and our people candidly too. Uh, but again, I think that it also has reinforced maybe some of the cynics, Dan, and some of the skeptics in the sort of the traditional banking area that, you know, some of the sort of the philosophical mission that some of the challenges have been on is the right one. Uh, and indeed, also just look at customer behaviors. Mm. Customers want to bank on a phone, essentially. That's the, for the most part, that's the first port of call for most customers. And in fact, the lockdown has, in some ways, forced people to be interacting with their bank on their phone, as as ha have every other aspect of commerce. So, yeah, Sorry, that'll that'll continue. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. So on that point, look, you know, I'm I'm about seventy days into this. I have put my wallet in my pocket three times. <laughs> which are the three occasions I've driven my car, and that was mostly that was for my driving license, not for anything else in my wallet. Um, is like all these other bold predictions. Is cash dead? Well, I mean, the short answer is no. At least from a U.S. standpoint, you know, one of the things that I love about going home to Australia or visiting London on business, for example, is I, you know, for the, at least the last five years, I've not drawn a, a you know a pound or an Aussie dollar on a business or personal trip to either place because I don't need to. Mm. It's all tap and go with the credit card. Digital payments is ubiquitous. Game on. It's great. It's awesome. Um, you know, I remember you know, being, a, being from Australia, you know, you have to be a world traveler. Even from the early days, I remember the first thing, the discipline I'd always have whenever I traveled to wherever it was in the world is I would literally not leave the airport without getting cash upon arrival. Mm. Obviously, in certain countries now, I don't have to do that. It's great. The U.S. is a different beast, though. Um, you know, cash is still king. In fact, perversely, what's the one thing that millions of Americans, are, I'm guilty of this myself, did when the doom and gloom of this lockdown and the sort of scant information about governors and mayors declaring martial law and all this other stuff and emergency powers, the first thing I did was go to the bank and get a lot of cash. Is that right? You know, yeah, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And, mm. and some of my, to the credit, some of my American friends were like, and they all call me JB. They were like, JB, listen, you know, you're not from here. Things could get messy quickly. Go, go, get, go get cash. Protect your family. Literally, that's what I was told by, by very well-intentioned friends and colleagues. Mm. And I did that. Uh, and it's, it's been interesting uh, because I've been using some of that cash, for example. Uh, you know, I, I remember I'm in Manhattan, so not everyone would necessarily relate to this, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, fruit and vegetable stands and vendors all across the city. There's a particularly good one, one block away from, from my apartment. Obviously, they don't accept credit cards or digital payments or Venmo or PayPal. You know, cash is king. So that cash 
and small denominations certainly came in handy. With that said, I think what will be interesting is, and that's a silly example, but I think it's important. Uh, but if you speak to people who survived Hurricane Sandy and other disasters where, you know, the electrical grid was impacted in New York, you know, they, they, I've heard plenty of people saying you got to always have cash, cash at home. You know, you never know. Um, but, but I think, particularly generationally, I think when you think through millennials um, and Gen Z, bear in mind millennials and Gen Z represent half the country. You know, they're growing up in a, and not even growing up, they're living in a digital world and a digital payment world. Everything's on the phone, e-commerce, not touching cash, it's virtual cash, digital cash. So I think the death of cash in the US ain't happening anytime soon. I also would say that um, if you look at some of the states where, you know, even in the last six months, pre-COVID have mandated that businesses have to accept cash, can no longer be digital only, which is interesting. And part of the rationale for that was through um, kind of ironically financial inclusion, uh, you know, particularly people at the lower end of the income spectrum may not have digital forms of payment. Mm -hmm. so, so that's kind of interesting. Um, but I think we'll see much, much more digitization of cash and rightly so. And I think it'll be better for the U S economy for more, even in person, digital versions of payment. I think it's inevitable. The rest of the world's moved fast and far, uh, and it, it should happen here. And it really, it's kind of amazing that in this amazing forward thinking, cutting edge, innovative economy, that still payment is still as dare I say, primitive as, as it seems to be relative to other countries. Yeah, absolutely. You know, pound for pound. Yeah, that's pound a great answer. And it's interesting, it's saying for when we first moved here, living in LA, we were told we should have cash in our earthquake kit. As part of this, we were told to go and get cash at the beginning of this crisis. The irony is, I think yeah. the only times I use cash are tipping and when I'm gambling. And neither of which I've been doing. I mean, I've, I've been tipping online shopping, so I've been doing it digitally. Yeah. So I actually didn't go and get cash, and I haven't touched a, a note of any kind, apart from some coins for my kids' schooling for, you know, 70 days. So look, moving slightly away from banking, a lot of innovation is happening in lots of different parts of the economy. Is there anything particularly that you've seen over this COVID period in terms of, a new innovative solution to a problem in other sectors that has impressed you? Uh, there, there, there are many, and that could be a, a, an entire podcast of itself. I think, let me look at, rather than say company specific, I think it's theme specific. Mm. So I think you're going to see more robotics across all aspects of, of our life. Uh, for example, through cleaning, through sanitization, you know, robots can do that job. Uh, you know, robots, thankfully, aren't at a health risk if they're exposed to, you know, infectious diseases. Um, robots can do the ugly jobs that maybe not many people want to do if they had a choice. So I think you're going to see much, much more of robotics used in the cleaning and particularly industrial cleaning, industrial maintenance, uh, and things like that. I think another theme is around wearable technology. There are many, uh, you know, commercial use cases for wearables, uh, especially in a think through a social distance world, how important that application is. <clears throat> I think I've got to hand it also to 
more specifically though, so those are themes, but let's look also tactically. You know, you've got to hand it to those, um, particularly grocery stores, you know, foods, supply chains, um, how they've adapted to uh, grocery delivery, grocery ordering, um, grocery packaging, grocery distribution, uh, you know, basic foodstuffs that we've all sort of, you know, probably taken for granted. And how some of these sort of less innovative industries have had to adapt through, you know, integrating with digital capabilities, whether that's for ordering, uh, distribution, sales, servicing, has really been fascinating to see. And unsurprising actually seeing the recent announcement of Uber to want to take over Grubhub, for example, would be an indication of that. But again, I come back to, I think, more use of technology broadly, robotics, wearable technology, uh, even artificial intelligence in applications going forward to this new normal. And, and, and here's the thing, though, is a rational CEO, for example, you know, who may have been fearful of deploying robotics because of potential reputational risks around replacing people, um, that's gone now because think through, you know, robotic cleaning, for example, at an industrial scale, it's just a, it's a security issue as much as anything else. You don't want to endanger your people um, necessarily, put them at risk unnecessarily. So I think you're going to see more of that business continuity risk management argument used for deploying some of these technologies, uh, which you haven't seen in the past, which will, which will definitely become part of the new normal. Absolutely. Look, thank you very much, Jeremy. Now, talking of the new normal, last question I think has to be, what are you most looking forward to whenever we get back to whatever the new normal is? Oh, mate, it's, that's an easy one. I want to watch my beloved Manchester United. Sorry that I've now offended half your listeners um, and the other half are cheering. I want to watch my beloved Manchester United on TV on the weekend. One, two, I want to have a barbecue. Um, I don't care who hosts it. I just want to go to one um, and be with my mates and my family and, and just be free. Honestly, that's just all I'm craving right now. Um, it's, it's the little things that really mean the most. Absolutely. Brilliant. Jeremy, thank you very much indeed for your time and for your insights. The pleasure was mine, Dan. Thanks to you and, and to everyone listening. Just keep, keep the faith and I uh, hope you're all doing well as best as can be. And uh, hopefully we'll do this in person in the not-too-distant future.